You're listening to Sarah Hagen backstage with interviews and insights from years inside the music industry. Join Sarah as she talks with masters of their crafts, finding out what makes them tick both inside and outside of the music business. Welcome to Sarah Hagen backstage. My guest today, Omar Hakim, is a drummer, producer, arranger, and composer with an exceptional career in the music industry spanning 50 years. Omar has worked with a who's who of artists and acts, including Weather Report, David Bowie, Foo Fighters, Sting, Madonna, Dire Straits, Brian Ferry, Journey, Kate Bush, Miles Davis, Daft Punk, Mariah Carey, David Lee Roth, and Celine Dion, for example. We are going to talk about his amazing career, what he is up to now, the recent Taylor Hawkins tribute shows that he helped put together, and we will get some invaluable advice for the next generation. So come along with me as I catch up with Omar Hakim. Omar, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Sarah. Hey. (laughs) It's so good to see you. I know we were just saying it's been a very long time. Yes, indeed it has. It's great to see you too. Yes. And I want to talk a little bit about first, um, what have you been up to the past couple of years and, and, and how did you kind of come through the pandemic and everything that that changed for you? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the pandemic was, was uh, tough for me. Like it was for most musicians, my band, um, and I have with my wife, Rachel Z, keyboardist, we have a band called Osmosis, and we had just finished an EP in 2019. We just put it out. We had a tour booked for 2020, and it all fell apart and put us all in, the, in a panic, of course. Um, so it, it was it was tough. Um, of course, we were sick during the pandemic. Um, and my mom was also passed away during the pandemic. So that was also really tough. So, you know, it's funny because a lot of people were saying, oh, during the pandemic, you know, I felt I, I stayed home, I recorded, I did all the stuff. It was the opposite for me. I, 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 it didn't, I didn't go into like deeper music mode. I think what I did go into was more of like a, almost like a, a introspective kind of meditative mode with it. And I got a chance to spend a lot of, quality time with my mom in the last year of her life so bittersweet from that standpoint that okay well all the work and everything was canceled but i i got to spend a really wonderful last uh days with my mom yeah that's that's beautiful i'm so sorry to hear about her passing away it is um i you know i i hear what you're saying about like a lot of people saying well i had all this time to record and to you know, create and all of that. And then I also hear a lot of people say, I didn't really want to do music for this time. Like it kind of made, yeah. me, made me pause a little bit, but I'm so glad that you had that time. Yeah, I really time. needed it. I really needed it, you know, because most of the time I'm going nonstop doing things, you know, it's always something going on, you know, touring, recordings, you know, I, mm-hmm. I'm fortunate that I'm, I'm, I'm staying busy with this and that, you know, working on projects, writing music, working in my studio here, you know, there's always something to do. So the break was like, Ooh, okay. I'm kind of forced to do this, but maybe I actually didn't need this, you know? Yes. Yeah. You know, one thing that, that stuck out for me from these conversations, um, Ronnie Venucci actually said to me, he said, you know, I never knew that these flowers grew at my house in the springtime because right. I was never home in the springtime. I was always touring. And he said, you know, I, I thought to myself, what didn't realize we had these beautiful flowers that, that grew in front yeah, of us. Right. Isn't that crazy? Right, <laughs> right. And I get it. And I, I just thought like, wow, that's a really like great visual. Yeah. When, but when we talk about, you know, the amount of time that, you know, artists t- are touring and away and, yeah. And then oh, yeah. once you have that that realization, it kind of it puts things in perspective. And I know that you've been very very busy lately. We're going to talk about that. But has okay. has that did that time cause you to um, change your thoughts about the you know level of of touring that you were doing or or the the pace that you were keeping? Well, I certainly wasn't touring as much as I did when I was younger. You know, like in in the the 80s and 90s and even into the 2000s, I was 
basically like insanely busy. You yeah. Know? Um, you know, when the call came, you know, you say yes to everything, right? Yes. And, you know, my kids were young and, you know, so it was all about getting out there, making a living, staying in the in the hustle and doing my thing, you know? Um, but as I, as I get older, uh, I'm a little more selective about being on tour and who I'm doing that with. And you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. being on the road is, uh, it, it can be fun sometimes, but it's, it's also a lot of work. And I think it's more the traveling than the playing actually that. Right. Right. It's, it's toll on your body and on your, you know, on, on everything, you know, um, Absolutely. Playing, you know, is sort of the shortest part of the day. It's, it's you know, getting back to the hotel at, you know, one in the morning, but then you have a 5 a.m. flight, you know, and you're, you just finished playing a three hour show and you're exhausted. And then, yes. you know, you know and, and all of those kind of wacky things that happen on the road or arriving in the town in Europe, but the, your hotel is not ready until three but you've but you landed at 10 a.m you know and right and you're exhausted and you're you just exhausted. you really need a bed and there's a sound check at four o'clock you know <laughs> you know yeah. those kind of things you know so yeah. people don't people don't see the uh kind of the wacky behind the scenes stuff that goes on on tour but then i've also been with uh, a lot of acts that do tour very comfortably and they're super successful i've worked for a lot of a lot of pop stars that you know private planes and, and all of that. And that's certainly a much more luxurious way to tour. So I've sort of experienced all of the levels of the music business over the last 50 or so years of doing this. And that blows my mind to say that, well, I've been a professional drummer for 50 years. It's amazing. It's so amazing. And I, you know, when when I get ready for these podcasts, I always do, I mean, you know, make a little outline and just yep. because I don't want to miss anything and mm. making your outline and kind of going through your discography, I just, it made me a little nervous. I have to be honest because I was like, oh my gosh, you know, just recalling all of these things. I know all these things that you've played on, but recalling all of them and kind of like putting them right in front of me all at once. I was like, oh my goodness, Omar. <laughs> just what an amazing body of work that you've that you've amassed over those 50 years it's just incredible it it's been quite a ride and um and i'm i it's been fortunate uh i yes i have worked very hard i love music i love drumming but i don't take it for granted i mm -hmm. i'm i'm grateful when the phone rings i'm i'm grateful that people are still interested in what i'm doing I'm grateful that people call me to to collaborate and and to get my uh, opinion, musical musical opinion about what they're doing and how I can help them. So yeah. this is this is what drives me to to continue doing it. You know, it's it's the love for it and it's the the a lifetime of dedication to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And you know, speaking speaking of that, I want to talk about a call that you recently got. Mm. Um, to work on the Taylor Hawkins tributes, the tribute concerts. Um, I mean, how, how did that come about that you were involved? I mean, I know that you, you know, have worked with the Foo Fighters and you know, Taylor and, and all yeah. of that. How, how did that come about for you to be involved with putting that together? Well, maybe I should talk about how I, how I met those guys because yes. I've been a huge fan of the Foo Fighters uh, ever since Dave started the band. Um, he's a, of course, an, an amazing drummer. We all know that. Mm -hmm. He's also an incredible writer and, and vocalist and, and guitarist. And, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's an amazing musician. Yeah. And so uh, nothing but love and respect for, for what he's done over the years. And, um, Rachel, my wife knew that I was a huge Foo Fighters fan. And I think around, it was 2010 or 2011, they put out a record called Wasting Light. Yes. That is like one of their masterpieces as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. And, uh, that record basically stayed on repeat in our car and on tour during that time period. So when we get home, she says, you know, the Foos are playing at Madison Square Garden next weekend. We had just gotten home. I was like, oh, well, I didn't know they were playing. We got to get tickets. So I go online and I check. Tickets are sold out. Dang. How are we going <laughs> to this. Then I thought about it. I said, you know, Taylor and Dave play Zilch and Symbols. Yes. 
right? So why yeah. don't I give the guys at Zildjian a call? I think I I don't I think I called John to Christopher, and I yes. yeah. I, I said, John, can you connect me with Taylor and Dave? I, they're coming to New York. I'd, I'd love to see the, the show. And he said, no problem. He said, I'll, I'll I'll send them an email right now. And you'll probably hear back from them in a couple of days, two or three days. They always get back, you know, and, uh, you know, so I'll I'll send that out. Actually, I'll send it out in a few minutes. I got a couple of calls. I'll send it out. Great. Thanks, John. Hang up the phone. Uh, I checked my emails about two hours later. Taylor wrote back in two hours. Oh, I love it. I was like, whoa, that's crazy. And and the message was lovely. He was like, dude, we know who you are. We love your playing, blah, blah, blah. We got you. How many tickets do you need? And I was like, whoa, that's that's just wonderful. So my Rachel, myself, Jerry Brooks, my bass player, my drum tech at the time, who I don't remember who that was, because uh, it's like, you know, 12 years ago, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, we go to Madison Square Garden. The show was incredible. And... Um, when we got backstage, Taylor met us backstage. We took pictures, we were hanging out. He said, Omar, you know, I'm really sorry. Everybody wants to meet you, but Madison Square Garden is a zoo. Mm. So why not, why not, you know, we're playing in Newark, New Jersey tomorrow, right? And nice. we live in New Jersey. And, and he's like, why don't you should come to New Jersey because we'll have more time to hang. It won't be so crazy here. And I was like, oh man, you know, thank you. I don't want to really be a pain. You know, you really hooked us up and, you know, I don't, I don't want to be that guy that, and then I get an elbow in the back. Bam. It was Rachel. <laughs> I go, oh yeah. I'm definitely coming. I'll, I'll yes. be there. <laughs> you know? So the next day um, it ends up that I, I met them at their hotel in New York and I, I, I took the bus with them to the venue in Newark on the bus was Taylor and Chris and Nate um, Pat wasn't there. Dave wasn't there. I think they were with their family or whatever they were doing and they were traveling separate, but I had a great hang with Taylor and Nate and Chris on the way mm -hmm. there talking music and, and whatever. And uh, the first thing that Taylor did when we got to Newark was he marched me right to the stage of the drums because we were talking about Gretsch drums and mm -hmm. his kid. So we go straight to the drums, <laughs> like two drum nerds. Yeah. And you know, I, I got a chance to sit down and play the kid and admire. We 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 did all of that, and it was so much fun. And then he said, "Hey, man, you know, Dave just arrived. He wants to meet you." So I go. He takes me back to meet Dave, and then he basically is like, "Listen, I got some other friends that are coming. I'll leave you guys. You guys just hang, whatever." And so I end up in the dressing room with Dave. And what was odd about meeting him for the first time was that he and I, it wasn't like I was meeting somebody for the first time. Mm -hmm. It was more like I was meeting someone who was very familiar. Yes. And, and it was almost like instead of a conversation that was like a person you didn't know, it was almost more like we were catching up like old mm -hmm. friends. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it, it was a, it was an odd kind of really interesting uh, exchange, you know, and he's he's a and everybody knows he's like mad cool. Per All of those guys. I mean, the whole yeah. thing. They are very down to earth, really super mad, mad, cool guys. Um, you know, just you're, you're going to have a lot of fun if you hang out with the Foo Fighters and you're going to laugh your ass off and, and the music's going to be awesome. And and so we became friends after that. Um, and, and oddly enough, in particular, Dave and I, I stayed in touch even more with Dave over the years than Taylor. Um and so I would get invited to, to to different things. I know when he was doing um, uh, the, the the movie about uh, purchasing the, the the recording consoles, the Sound City documentary. Yeah, Sound City, yes. You know, I I think there's a little cameo in there. Uh, and during that time, we set up uh, in in at six oh six their studio, mm -hmm. double drops, and we had a lot of fun jamming together. Uh, fast forward, you know eight, 10 years after that, uh, when they were doing um, the Medicine at Midnight album, their last studio album, uh, Dave kind of described this approach to what they were doing and how he was thinking maybe I could add, come in and add some percussion parts to some of the Taylor's grooves that they were working on. So I, I ended up spending a couple of weeks with them during the making of um, 
the Medicine at Midnight record. So, you know, it, it, this has been sort of a relationship that developed over the years. Mm -hmm. um, so when, when Taylor passed away, actually, let me just go six months before that, or even five, yeah, five or six months before that, they played a gig, I think it was Bridgeport, Connecticut. And Dave was like, man, we're coming to the East. You got to come to this gig. And he kept checking in with me, come to the gig. So we, we, we went out to the gig and it was an incredible gig. We sat on the side of the stage, Rachel and I checked out the show. Uh, that was the last time I saw Taylor alive. Um, in fact, when he did the part of the show where he goes out front to sing and Dave plays drums, mm -hmm. uh, somebody to love, right? By Queen. Yep. Um, I hear Taylor go in the mic, where's Omar? Ah. And, every, and the crew and everybody turns around and looks at me and, and Dave motions with the sticks, get up here. And so it turned into this really fun jam. And that was my first time jamming with them. I love that. We had a, we had a, a fun time. And after the gig, you know, we celebrated and celebrated the, the release of uh, Taylor's uh, record that had just come out, the NHC Project with Navarro and Chris Cheney on bass. And mm -hmm. I was just telling how much, you know, we thought that was so banging, you know. And yeah. so that was a that was a beautiful evening of, of Taylor playing his buns off and you know, me hanging with him and, and seeing him really for the last time. Um, wow. The day before uh, he passed away, Dave texted me from South America and said, uh, it was kind of a funny text. He says, um, uh, we, have a, we have a bet on the bus, who's the bass player and let's dance. And the reason he asked was because Nile Rogers was gonna be on the same show with him. Oh, so gotcha. Me, he's gonna ask Nile to come up and play Let's Dance. Dude, we wish you were here to play Let's Dance. Who's the bass player in Let's Dance? So I, we were going back and forth in text, you know, uh, and I told him um, uh, it was uh, Carmine, Carmine Rojas on bass. It's incredible, uh, incredible bass player. Um, so um, yeah, and then the next night I get that news. Yeah. Well, yeah. That was um, that was just that was a kick in the gut to everybody who, who loves the band and, and of course the fans and yeah you know, he was so beloved uh, all over the world um absolutely so, yeah, that was tough so a couple of weeks later i went to la to to check in uh just to see how dave was holding up um and um yeah yeah i, I mean a couple of months later uh, we were having a conversation and he had mentioned the idea of doing this tribute show. Would mm -hmm. I be into doing it? You know, of course, I, whatever you need, you know, say the word. Um, and so he was kind of filling me in on it as it was developing. He was, you know, kind of keeping me in the loop. And I, and I think I was the first guy out to L.A. for the rehearsals because they, they, they had a bunch of drummers, as mm -hmm. you know, trees, you know, baby Shane playing his buns yes, off. Yes. Out. Uh, yeah. I can know. that was just I just have to I have to say Shane getting up and playing and and nailing it and channeling oh that God. energy was no yeah it was it was incredible. It was incredible. So I went out like at the very top of August to kind of be the rehearsal drummer in many mm -hmm. ways. I was there you know, while things were getting worked out. I think the first two guys there were me and and Josh Freeze, actually. Wow. You know, and so, you know, and I think maybe for the first week, yeah, first week it was me, then Josh, who was on tour, arrived back in LA. Then it was kind of he and I mm -hmm. helping the foos kind of put all everything together. Right. And then all the other drummers started coming by, you know, Stuart Copeland and um when we got to london we had another week of rehearsal um uh, with um roger and rufus taylor with nandy yeah uh, stewart you know so it was it was a really incredible um beautiful tribute um the music was incredible every like i said everybody played and sang their hearts out 
and um yeah yeah. It was beautiful. It, it was absolutely beautiful. And, you know, just seeing the community come together and the drum, drumming community, because Taylor, for as much of a superstar as he was and kind of transcended the the drum throne, um, if we can yeah. say it that way, he he was so like you mentioned earlier, such so into the gear and yeah the people and he was just yeah. a drummer's drummer and he was into everything that we're all into. So, yeah. I think, you know, anyone, anyone who really came into contact with him felt that. And, um, I was surprised by that when I met him, um, yeah. for the first time, I, I felt like, um, wow. Like you, like you said about Dave, you know, just talking to someone who you've known somehow and yeah. with Taylor, just geeking out on drum gear and the companies and what was coming out and who worked where he knew all this stuff and i was like oh, yeah. that's incredible yeah. no um, it was incredible and he's not and he's an he's he's a super generous guy i mean i i heard a story um and i think it was on it was one of the the videos during the tribute where you know the accountant wanted to know why there were all of these guitar center charges on his on Taylor's credit card, like, or he called the guitar center. He goes, "Hey, you know, are these charges real? Like, Taylor doesn't need to buy all this gear." And the and the the salesman says, "No, no, no, you don't understand. A kid comes into the guitar center, and if Taylor's there, Taylor will buy that kid stuff. He will buy buy a you know a symbol pack for him and hand it to him, send him out out the store. I mean, he was so generous, you know, mm -hmm. and 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 also a great singer." You know, yes. you can't forget, like he was really a great performer and a great singer. So, you know, this is, um, you know, and then and then the family, the kind of family knit vibe that they have with each other. With, with mm -hmm. the I mean, it's, you know, a lot of these bands, they, they, you know, when you're together for that long, it goes, it's not a band anymore. Right. You know what I mean? It, it's yeah. a fair. And losing a family member, you know. It, you know, that's what it really is at the end of the day. I mean, those guys, you know, Dave and, and Taylor, you know, there's plenty of of uh, documented uh, footage of their of their friendship and the love mm -hmm. that they have, you know, for each other and also with the band. So, you know, yeah. you're, you're really aware of this energy. Yes. When, when, I, you're spending, when you're spending time with these guys, you know. I agree. The respect level. I always appreciated the respect level. I yeah. One one thing that comes to mind when you just said that was, um, you know, Dave, an incredible drummer, as you mentioned, and coming into a band where a drummer is now the singer, guitar player, and now you're playing yeah. drums. You know, that's that's a that's a big deal. And I remember over the years working at Zildjian and asking Dave to do promotion, any kind of promotion, and and he would always say. Taylor's the drummer. Taylor is the drummer. Like right. he Taylor right. is my drummer. Like and he I'm playing guitar and I'm singing and Taylor's drumming and and that was always really significant to me that he yeah. always like would shine the light on Absolutely. Yes, yes, absolutely right. And and I think that you know that also shows his generosity because at the end of the day he's an incredible drummer, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um but he's also disciplined as an artist and he understands how important it is to create a band dynamic mm -hmm. you know what i mean as as well as he can play yes he understood that what's going to make the foo fighters work is that you know the sum of the parts are going to what makes this what make this thing great yes. and by having a kindred spirit drummer person Taylor, who could adopt his concept. Because again, with the odd thing too is when the drummer becomes the singer mm -hmm. um, and they need another drummer, whoever comes in has to be willing to sort of learn how they think on the instrument. Yes. You know what I mean? Like there's mm -hmm. a, and if you go back and you listen to the first Foo Fighters record, which is all Dave, Mm -hmm. and the second Foo Fighters record, which is again mostly Dave, yes. right? He he's an incredible orchestrator of drum drum parts. Yes, and and they're deceptively 
simple on the surface. Mm -hmm. Like if you're not paying attention, the, the stuff goes by you so smooth, you know, that yeah. you, you don't realize the orchestration with even where cymbal crashes are placed and the kick drum patterns and how they vary slightly between the verse and the chorus. You know, it's like when, when I sat down to, it's one thing to be a fan of the music and, you know, listen to it as a fan, but then it's another thing to actually sit down and play it. Yes. And to do the study. So when I put on the drummer hat and I'm like, okay, let me go back and listen and really learn these parts. You know, even that middle section of Pretender, mm -hmm. there's a way that they, you know, the, there's a breakdown. Yes. And then they reconstruct the drum beat again. And how they do it over eight bars is really interesting. It is. Yes. You know, and I know any Foo Fighters fan that's a drummer knows what I'm talking about with that song. Absolutely. You know I mean? So it's really interesting that they, they, that you know over the 25 years that you know Taylor monster drummer himself was able to take everything that Dave does and make it his mm -hmm. and then they made these incredible records they did so you know it, it it's really it's an it's an incredible story and i think the music speak for speaks for itself because it um you know it it's it's people we we're all still listening to all of those records up even and what's remarkable about them is that they stay in the game yes so every record is growth that's pretty amazing most bands after 25 years they can go out playing their hits from 15 years ago absolutely and never make another record ever again but what's interesting about this crew is that they keep going mm -hmm. and yes. they keep writing new music and they keep collaborating with people. And um, like I said, the Medicine at Midnight record, there's some really incredible stuff in there. But even the Concrete and Gold album, I mean, every record has a single, it has a, a something that, they, that they've arrived at, a new approach to something and an, an exploration that keeps it fresh you know it's pretty badass actually yes yeah and i i hear you on the growth thing it's amazing and i have to say you mentioned wasting light and how that was in your cd player in your car forever yes. yeah. and i just have to tell you a really short story but it was um when that came out i had this advanced copy that yeah. i was so excited you know super excited about this record um, mm had it in my car it yep. stayed in my car it was the only thing in my cd player for months and then <laughs> i was in this car accident it was a really really bad car accident the car was totaled i was fine it was not my fault um right. but the car was towed you know to the lot that it gets towed to when a car is totaled wow. and all i wanted from that car was that cd <laughs> so, <laughs> Get my <laughs> hit the eject button on that <laughs> i went to the lot and i talked to the guy there and i was like I know the car is dead and it doesn't turn on anymore. Is there any way you could like get the battery going so I can get this CD out of the CD player? And he did it for you. me. He got it out. I still have it. But it was like one of those memories. I was like, I can't let this go. I have to. Yeah, have it. So, that's, a, that's a brilliant record. Yeah, yeah. It was so great. Um, so speaking of projects and touring and the, you know, bands being like a family, you, and you mentioned this earlier, but you're actually in, a group with your wife and yeah. um, the incredibly talented Rachel Z, who I've had the pleasure of spending a little time with too. Yeah. Um, such an incredible musician. The music that you both make together is is beautiful and osmosis. Yeah. And um, how how are things going? Do you have plans? Did you do makeup tour dates from the pre-pandemic? Yeah, we, pandemic? we had a few makeup tour dates, but then um, we, we started writing new music again and we were like, you know, we need to kind of tweak the direction of the osmosis project. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we are, uh, we're back in the studio again, working on some new music, sort of taking our time. We thought we would get it done a lot quicker, but then we were like, you know what? It's better to just take a breath and make sure we're like super duper happy with the new direction. So I, I think that we'll keep working for the rest of the year. Um, and the idea is to is to put out an, uh, a follow up to to Osmosis in uh, wow twenty twenty three. Yeah, I, which is coming sooner than we realize. <laughs> it's 
exactly. We it's are crazy. Yeah, we're, um, third we're in the third decade of a new century here, you know? So it's like, wow. Oh, I know. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, like that, right? It's like, when you say it that way, my goodness. Um, yeah. But that's that's amazing. And are you recording in the studio that you're in right now? This yeah, is your... yeah. We we work at home, even though the 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 first EP, we tracked a lot of it at Power Station, mm -hmm. in New York City. We we did a little um, kind of a deal with Avid, our friends at Avid. They they had just put out a new piece of gear um, that they wanted to promote, and it was an opportunity for us to use that piece of gear to re record. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, yeah, that'll be cool, you know. And I love Power Stations, one of my favorite studios on the planet. So right. you know, you get an opportunity to get in there; it's always fun. But then I every but when we were done with the basic tracking, actually everything was finished and mixed here. Um, okay. And we even one of the songs from top to bottom here just to finish off that EP. So the the, the, the new record, the whole thing will be done here. And and for me, I mean, I I started getting to the into the home studio thing just for freedom really i mean i did a record uh for a label you know when i when i first got my record deal and you know watching the clock and the whole budget thing with the label and i was like this is not fun right you know, <laughs> you know what i mean and then you you know you you do this record and then you 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 know you have this huge bill that you owe the label that they pull out of your royalties and i was just mm -hmm. like you know I don't want to do another record like that. And it was from there that I got really serious about being able to record at home. And I had already been doing it, but I think I needed to bump up the, the level of the equipment so that I could do finished masters at home. I was doing my demos and everything. And I, I had some of the early MIDI gear and the early Macs. And I, I had like a, a, the version one disc of Performer when it first came out. You know, wow. it, you know, I was like at the very beginning of of MIDI, you know, that's my yeah. age. <laughs> well, that, well, it's amazing to me because I, I knew that about you, that you had really like embraced technology early on when, you yeah. know, a, maybe a lot of people were kind of like, no, that's foreign to me. You you embrace that. And it it gave you this um, like added edge to what you were doing. And. And it was survival. It was mainly survival because, <laughs> you know, um, I always made the joke that Roger Lynn changed a, a lot of drummers' lives with that dang Lynn drum, you know, because yes. what happened was, you know, a, a lot of people didn't need to hire drummers anymore, you know, right. and a lot of the music of the 80s, that became the sound on the recordings, you know, it was it, was, it became a drum machine. You know, some of the biggest records of the 80s have drum machine on them you Absolutely. know so, so for me it was like hmm if i can't beat them i'm gonna have to join them you know yeah. i need, so i marched my butt down to manny's music on 48th street new york city and bought myself a lindrum and read the manual learned how to program it and then i reprinted all my business cards and put drums drum programmer <laughs> percussion. i had to add drum programmer in there you know absolutely and yeah. I think it, it was good it was it was good it, it you know and i was young so it, i it was like i'm just getting started i can't mm -hmm. you know be defeated right at the beginning of what i'm doing here right it's like absolutely so, and so isn't it was, that it's, it's amazing how like something like that can actually change someone's perspective uh, perspective about what sound is right oh, like yeah. so like we all think about the the drum sounds of the 70s and you think about john bonham and the big like booming kind of like rock and roll sound exactly. and when you think about the 80s you do you think about those electronic drum breaks like that's yeah. what that's what it was it's just yeah it's amazing so and even and even with the acoustic drums on some on those records you know the whole gated reverb concept Yes. You know, um, yeah. so, you know, that that sound of gated reverb and, and you know, the big booming drum sounds on the, you know, the David Bowie record, the Hall & Oates records, you know, Power mm -hmm. Station record, you know, there's a bunch of records, Phil Collins, yes. you know. Yeah. You know, so that is that sound, you know. Uh, it was fun, too, because um, on the tribute show, the L.A. show, uh, we had Mark King from Level 42, the bass player. Oh. Yep. And he did um, Something About You on the show, which evidently was one of Taylor's favorite songs. I mean, that was cool. The show was really artists 
the artist that Taylor loved, the artist mm -hmm. that he worked with, songs that he loved. And so I thought it was really cool that Mark King came through and, and paid That's tribute. That is so amazing. I, I love that too. Just knowing, you know, Taylor's love for Queen and Rush and, you know, having those artists involved and, and, um, you know, and then on the other side of it, like Nandy, having Nandy involved as this young, right. you know, absolutely um, young woman who is, oh my gosh, I've, you know, I, I love, love, love Nandy and her dad and no. her whole family. Oh, yeah. Incredible people. And to see absolutely. her grow and then to see the Foo Fighters respect, you know, her talent and get her, give absolutely. her a um, platform. Yeah. You know, her. it's like, it it was beautiful and and it's 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 an encouraging all inclusive kind of vibe that Dave and the Foo Fighters have you know have created in, mm -hmm. in the business you know and it's really beautiful the human part of just loving music and being a musician and you know and keeping the the fun in there and keeping the the wonder of 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 being a musician you know Absolutely. I mean I, I think that's why I'm still doing it I still have that sort of wonder and that love, I still get excited about new music. I'm still a fan of music. Yes. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I'm still, I'm still looking for that song, you know, that you yes. know, makes me feel the a song. certain Yeah, well, what happens to you when you hear a song like that? Like, is there a physical reaction that you feel when you know? Well, that well when when I want to hear a song over and over again, you know yeah. what I mean? That That's yes. that's the sign. That's like, oh yeah, play that again. Yes. You know yeah, I mean? right. When when the CD goes in the CD player and you don't let yeah. it out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Let's play that one again, you know. So, you know, I this is the part of music that I love and I think Dave talks <laughs> about like that, you know. And yes. um, we've 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 had some great talks about about these kind of things, you know. So, yeah. It, it's it's a trip, you know. So hopefully um the new Osmosis record we can Get a few songs in there that people want to play over and over again. Absolutely, that's, that's absolutely. My goal with that project, you know, to kind of do that. That's the know. goal, right? And yeah. um, and so what else? What are you, I know that you have some things coming up that you're working on. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the next thing up is um, I got invited to do the Percussive Arts Society meeting this year. I haven't done it in a while. Yes. And um, yeah, you know um. It's funny clinics are 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 um, are interesting for me because I I even though I, I I have technique and I've developed technical language over the years my playing is kind of more you know the approach isn't solely technical because mm -hmm. I'm always kind of looking for the best way to make the music feel good. So sometimes when I get asked to do clinics, I'm sort of like, what am I going to talk about? Because I just saw, you know, a half dozen YouTube videos where guys are just, you know, ripping the drums to, shed, to shreds. And there's like a pile of sawdust on the floor where the drums <laughs> used to be. And, you know, I'm like, you know, yes. you know, what am I going to do with that? <laughs> you know, but then I remember, well, no, I have other things to talk about. I have. Oh, yes. You know what I mean? Uh, and I think that. Um, I think that the, the 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 beautiful thing about the drumming community is that there is um, room for all of these conversations. I think that the the conversation about technique and chops that's like one conversation, mm -hmm. and then there's the conversation about music and what makes a person. In fact, I, I decided to call my session "What's More Important: Chops." or choices. Oh, okay. I like that. That's not even the same. Well, you know, I, I don't know. Is that, you know, I, maybe that title, depending on who you ask, you know, it might be like, if you ask a table full of drummers at a dinner, it might start a food fight. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, we'll find it's out. We'll have to, yeah, right. We'll have to go to dinner at, at Pacek and, and see what happens. No, I, that's, I really, that's really ingenious because when you think about what you just said with the, with the chops. And of course, you know, chops are important and it's fun to watch chops happen. Absolutely. And Absolutely. you know, it's fun to see the sawdust fly. But when you talk about the, the juxtaposition between that and choices where you're, you're not playing all the notes, you're, you're choosing what to do, right. Yeah. Instead of doing it all. That's a, that's a really good title. I like it. 
Yeah, and and um, I think that um, it opens up because again, I think what I was trying to do was I really want to open up the conversation. There's going to be plenty of guys there talking about you know the technical things, the rudimental things, and all of the mm -hmm. things that make up the language of drumming and mm -hmm. how the language of drumming supports the overall language of music. And and that's how I look at these things. Uh, to me, I I more look at it as language. Yes. You know what I mean? And and so for me to over the years kind of dip in and out of these different languages inside of music styles, you know, mm -hmm. as records, I've done rock records, I've done dance records, I've done reggae records, I've done all kinds of things. Only because you know, I, I never marketed myself as of a of, of a one stylistic kind of drummer. I never said I'm a rock drummer or I'm a jazz drummer or I'm a this drummer or that drummer. My goal as a musician was to just be a worthy collaborator. That was all that I was trying to do out here. Mm -hmm. you know? And from that standpoint, um, I don't have to say no to anything, but I can challenge I can challenge myself to go into a situation and and hopefully make a um, a meaningful contribution to the music that was that was all yeah. i was trying to do i love that and that keeps you working it keeps and it keeps you you know in um being able to go from genre to genre because if that's your if that's your goal to really um serve the music and be a collaborator right that's right right that's what that's what musicians need which is that's absolutely, that's absolutely. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like you're, you know, everybody has that one uh, annoying friend that speaks a bunch of languages and no matter <laughs> where you go, they know how to speak like, you know, like wherever you go, they're like, dude, yeah. when did you learn how to speak Urdu? Like, right. you know, like, <laughs> yes. you know, it's like, it's one of those things, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it's true that the person who speaks the most languages ends up having the most fun because they're kind of going around and they're they're free they're kind of you know and so music was the same way well if i speak that and i speak that and i you know i can have fun with david bowie and weather report and the foo fighters and amnita baker and daft punk and you know no matter where i go yes i can enjoy their language absolutely it's so you know I mean? it's so smart um and i i kind of want to go a little bit back in time and talk about when you first started playing, I know you were really young. You were yeah. five five or so when you started playing drums? Yeah, I started playing at age five. <laughs> I started with a little holiday gift from from a family member of a, of a toy snare drum that Love it. for some reason I had an immediate affinity to it. Mm -hmm. They around my neck and I immediately started playing some marching drum cadence I heard on TV or whatever. And it just was very natural for me to, to play. And then... Um, my dad purchased a um, a real Ludwig snare drum for me, which I still have. I found it the other uh, a couple of months ago. Oh, that's so, so um, sweet. 1967 black lacquer Ludwig uh, 5 by 14 snare drum, which sounds amazing, actually. I bet. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, that's kind of near and dear mm -hmm. to my heart. Um, and then my first gigs were with, with my dad. Mm -hmm. I started gigging with him at age 10. He had a band called the Nomads, Hassan and the Nomads. And then the and the tagline was most embarrassing. It was featuring Omar Hakim, the 10-year-old drum sensation, which was like, oh God. You know, <laughs> from you know, it was 10 years old, 11 year old drums. You know, he had yeah. I was part I was part of the act. Right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> you know I mean? yeah. As a kid, you know, mm -hmm. and my memories of of that are like, you know, kind of walking into the gig. But then being so wiped out at the end of the gig at 10 years old that I I don't even remember how I got home. I would just wake up the next morning in bed. Oh my gosh. Dad would carry me back in the house and put me in the bed. Oh. Is that all a dream? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I love yeah, that. It was like a family band, you know, it was my cousin played sax and flute. And uh, my godbrother was a percussionist who actually was my kind of first drum teacher. And um but then um, I studied with a guy named Walter Perkins in Queens. He was also known as Baby Sweets. Great jazz drummer who played with my dad. You know, they were friends. Um, 
And then there was another drummer who really got me straightened out, a guy named Clyde Lucas. Um, he was a drummer, one of Count Basie's drummers in the early 70s. Wow. And um, there was a club that we used to go to in the hood uh, called The Village Door. And it was where the, the older jazz musicians would, would go to keep their chops up and jam. Mm -hmm. And the younger crew would also show up. So, you know, I remember going there with Marcus Miller when we were kids and oh. a great keyboard player, Bernard Wright, rest in peace. He just passed recently. Um, mm -hmm. uh, another great keyboard player, Donald Blackman, uh, Denzel Miller, uh, Alvin Winky Flight, the sax player, Tom Brown, trumpet player. There was a bunch of us that used to go to the village door. That's kind of where we got our jazz thing together and get yelled at by the older guys. <laughs> 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 Rightfully so, right? That was like yeah. part of the that was part of the uh the teaching. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, you gotta you gotta you know you gotta get whipped into shape. Yeah, pay your dues, right? You pay your dues, you know, go through the boot camp, you know. I'm I'm grateful for it, you know. I love that. I love that. And when when you were when you were so young coming up and you know, you were mentioning jazz, but did you have a um a vast, you know, listening uh preference were you into different, different styles yeah yeah because that you know at the end of the day at that age that was still my dad's music on a certain yeah. level even even though i'm playing it i'm there it's fun i'm doing my thing i love music but the kids my age we were listening to you know am radio you know everything that was on hit radio r b radio so mm -hmm. you know everything from Let's see. The the Beatles, the Stones, the Temptations, the Supremes, the Jackson Five. The the I said the Rolling Stones already. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix Experience, Sly and the Family Stone, Earthman and Fire, Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding. You know I can uh, the Jefferson Airplane. There's you know uh, the Doors. You know there was all this music on the radio, and it felt like pop radio during this time period wasn't so segregated. I kind of remember turning on pop radio and hearing everything from the British invasion bands to Motown. Mm -hmm. And it was really cool. Yeah. You know? And if you had a great song, you know, those, those records crossed over, you know, American back then R and B or soul music of course, it would have the, the songs would have a journey sort of on the regional soul and R&B charts or the black music charts. But then the ones that would cross over into sort of the, the, the larger uh, market, the, the mm -hmm. pop market. You know, and again, what's funny is we didn't have the Internet back then. So the record business, you could have regional hits. There, there could be a band that was famous in New York that nobody knew about in California right. or even in a, or Ohio or a band from Miami that, you know, so when a, a little band from Miami blows up called Casey and the Sunshine Band and all of a sudden their records are being distributed all over America or same with Motown, you know, yeah. starting in Detroit. But then, you know, the music was so strong that you know, it created this explosion across the country. And it was, it was really an exciting time um, yes. in music because all of this, all of this musical information um, was being disseminated out there at a, at a critical time during the civil rights movement and everything that was going on in the United States. So it was a really, it was a, it was an incredible time. It was a, a tough time in America, but the young people were really trying to move things forward with the music, you know? And so to grow up during that time period and witness that was pretty amazing. And then I'm also, I, I became a teenager just as fusion was starting to happen. Right. And so, you know, to, to see Tony Williams go from miles to the lifetime thing and then the beginnings of Weather Report and Return to Forever and all of these bands and, and coming up and watching the convergence of jazz and rock mm -hmm. and how, you know, we go from, you know, trumpet and sax being the lead instrument to synthesizers and guitars becoming the lead instrument because right. of, of the 
the sound and the language of rock music getting fused with jazz. And Absolutely. I, I kind of remember hearing right before Jimi Hendrix died that there was talk of a Miles Davis, Jimi Hendrix collaboration. I think I read that as a kid in like a Rolling Stone magazine or something. And it, so when oh, Hendrix right. passed away, I was really bummed out because um, I was like, wow, what, what would that have been like if Miles and Hendrix had made a record? Amazing. So it was, yeah, interesting time. Yeah, incredible. And I think about I think about that too. I mean, you think about those musicians who um, were gone way too young and what mm. they could have contributed had they had 50 years, you know, in the yeah. industry, how, what would have happened and what would we have been gifted with as far as no, music goes? It's true. And, and even, you know, like, again, speaking of Hendrix specifically, a lot of people don't realize that all of that work that he did, I think was a short time period. It was only like four or five years. Yes. It, it, it seems was. like it was, you know, 10 years of work, right? But it mm -hmm. all happened like five years. Right. Right. So, so compressed. And it just, it just blows my mind to think about that. Like what, what it could have been, you know, yeah. even the Beatles, when you think about yes. you know, what they did between 64 and 68, or, you know, it was like, that's pretty amazing too. Sometimes these things happen yeah. in really intense explosions of, of, it of is music. right. It is. It's a, it's like a, um, you know, a flame that, that yeah. kind of goes up and, and you and it's hard to imagine that it was that short of a time period and and mm -hmm. um watching the beatles watching get back um you know i i tell everyone to watch that documentary it's yeah. genius it is really really incredible to see this time period in their uh in their work together and what came out of it you know what those songs to see those songs that are just absolute classics oh yeah created how they were created how they interacted with each other the different personalities and then to realize that how short of a time period it was that they were actually active yeah. as a band and you think about the beatles they've you know it's been decades and decades of their music being you oh, know yeah. on the radio and out there and you know our children listening to the music too and oh, yeah. then you know, to, to realize that it was such a short span and what, what could have come from more. I oh, don't know. It was, it was remarkable. I watched it too. And um, what was really cool. And I've been seeing some other things on YouTube uh, footage of them on the Ed Sullivan show <clears throat> when bands would come on and, you know, they weren't lip singing, they were playing live and, and wow. they were, they were a great live band. And <clears throat> I think it was because they did pay the live dues. It wasn't like, Right now, you know, people make a record and they go out and they play, mm -hmm. but then they have, you know, a Pro Tools system running in the back and with, you know, half the music or whatever they're doing. But back mm -hmm. then, you know, they, they talk about the story of the Beatles in the German clubs playing, you know, half dozen sets a day. You do that for six months, you're going to get really tight. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And so as a live band, and that's kind of how I grew up playing in live bands. You know, like even when I think about Nile Rodgers and Chic, I mean, I met Nile when I was 12. Wow. At the Jazzmobile workshop in Harlem. And he, you know, he was, you know, was free lessons for the kids, you know? Mm -hmm. so, and, uh, and then he and I had a band that was one of those like band shell bands at an amusement park. Oh, very a, cool. Yeah. Like in uh, the band was, um, we played a great adventure, Six Flags Great Adventure in New Jersey here. That's so great. And, and yeah, you'd walk through the park and there we were. Uh, the, the the group was called Brown Sugar because there were three girls out front and Nile yeah. and myself and the keyboard player. And they were kind of like the Supremes, but we would do this music, you know, it was like a, the, the pop, the pop R&B charts of that year, whatever that was, seven, mid seventies, before mm -hmm. she days. But we were playing all day long at the park. You know, we would do a half dozen sets, you know, we the gig would start at noon and we'd get off at six and sick from cotton candy and hot dogs and <laughs> like really, <laughs> really tight. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Really, you know, and so that playing, that that work ethic, you know, mm -hmm. is, is um, that experience of connecting with other musicians and 
you know that it's invaluable and a beautiful feeling too of playing yeah. with, with your friends yeah exactly and and again the the amazing um array of musicians that you've played with it just is a testament to to that to your work ethic and and also to your ability to um really connect with people because you know people like the david bowie and you know celine and daft punk they want to work with people that are you know easy to work with and and that that they get along with too madonna and sting and you know that it's just it's um yeah it's a testament to you Mm. for sure absolutely um and i just you know I am super excited for PASIC, of course, because I get to see you in person. Um, so yeah. so I'll put some information in the description and I'll make sure that everyone knows how to get there. It's uh, yeah. November, November 9th through the 12th in Indianapolis. And That's like, right. what an opportunity to get to see you present a clinic. It's going to be great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the, to the conversation and to kind of connecting with the community. It's been a while. Uh, I think mine is on uh, Thursday, the 10th of November. I'm not looking at the calendar. Yep, Thursday is the 10th. Thursday is the 10th, yeah. So mine, I believe it's in the afternoon around 2, 2 p.m. Fantastic. Yeah, so it should be fun kind of working out, you know, what I'm going to do. But I think just that subject matter alone will, I think, will spark a great great talk, a great Q&A. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yes, yes, me too. I can't, I cannot wait. And I will definitely include all the information. I will make sure that everyone has um, links to your social accounts and everything so they can pay attention to what you have coming up and check out um, when you do finish that recording, they can, they can check it out. And um, before we go, I just want to ask if you have any advice to drummers coming up the next generation, that kind of thing, besides pay your dues, because that's important too, right? Well, well, you know, Really, the, the the main thing about this journey of being a musician is about the love of the music, and and it's incredible because um, that that love can deliver you to places that you never imagined or dreamed of. But you, but it's really all about kind of believing in that, you know, and and um, committing to. Um, what you believe in to the point where you know you re- you remove the fear of of like am i going to make it or or is this going to happen you know as long as you're doing it it's already happening you know what i mean so mm-hmm. at that point it's just about following the music and that that's what i always tell people that i did you know well what did you do i i just followed the music you know what i mean yeah um i I did a clinic once you know about 20 years ago and this this uh mom gets up in the audience she goes um well you know so what would you tell tell my son about you know having a safety net you know it's really important to do this and go to school and blah 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 and you know and really you know just kind of getting a a safety net. And I said, well, ma'am, I have some bad news for you. <laughs> I said, um, if you're really serious about this, you're going to have to remove that safety net. Yeah. Oh, boy. You know, silence. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because the problem with the safety net, and I'm not saying don't have one, mm-hmm. but what I'm saying is just understand that when things get a little bit tough, People just know they can fall into the safety net. Sure. But but when there's nothing left to lose, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. You, you know, you find yourself like, you know, this is what I'm doing. This is this is that leap of faith. This is my faith in my my gift that the, yes. the universe has bestowed on me. You know, whatever name you give to the your higher power, you know, this this ability to do this, this um thing that you've been given to share with humanity, you know, this is, it's a, it's an odd thing because if you believe it and you decide to go down that spiritual path of being an artist, then you know, it's like, well, I'm doing this. You know, I love this. I'm doing this. 
You know what Absolutely. I mean? So it's all about that passion for me. I so agree. And I think no matter what you're doing, right? It's about the passion. Oh yeah, because it's I'm, it doesn't just go for music. It's like if mm -hmm. you you want to be a a, a a surgeon or you want to be a, an attorney, a lawyer, mm -hmm. or you want to be a, you know, whatever job you're doing in the world, a fireman, a, 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 you know, every job requires that same level of commitment to do it well, to, to be great at it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so me as being an, being an artist, being a musician, musician is no different. It's all about the passion and staying connected to your love for the thing. Absolutely. I love that, Omar. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you coming okay. and being my guest today and cannot wait to see you in just a few weeks in Indianapolis. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I will see you soon. Indeed. All right. Bye. Bye Thank you for tuning in today. Join us each Tuesday for new episodes of Sarah Hagen Backstage.